Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. He was transformed in front of them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with Jesus. Peter reacted all, um, to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When he was speaking, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the clouds said, this is my son whom I dearly loved. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me with a prayer? Great God of dazzling beauty and overshadowing majesty, in Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, we take a glimpse at this image of your glory. Teach us today to listen to him so that we may hear your voice and follow your holy way. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So imagine it with me. There you are, uh, treading up a side of a dry, rugged mountain um, with the wind kind of pressed against your back, propelling you forward. For a little over a year now, you've been part of a ragamuffin group of uh, fishermen, tax collectors, and thieves, and probably more. Uh, some of you guys you've known for your entire lives, but most of these people you've only met in a short while. To the left of you are two brothers, James and John, curly-haired teenagers roughly around 13 to 16 years old. And you have known these brothers for your entire life, too. All of you were raised by fishing families just right off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And growing up, their uh, thunderous antics never ceased to annoy you, but there they are. And there you are all. Because over a little over a year ago, you all were called to follow this strange religious teacher by the name of Yeshua, Jesus. Destined for a life of fishing, you couldn't have imagined what would be in store for you when you originally accepted this strange calling. So over the past year, you have seen your teacher do wondrous things. You have seen this rabbi raise people from the dead, heal the sick and blind, as well as teach very strange but profound lessons. Truly, he was no ordinary teacher. But now, here you are, a few called among the few to come up with Jesus to the top of a mountain. Maybe you aren't too sure why you're called up there. Perhaps Jesus didn't make it clear to his disciples, though you can assume, because he is a good rabbi, that he just needed a quiet place to pray. So you go with him. And the sun is shining upon your face, the sweat dripping off from your forehead. Um, though the higher you climb, the thinner the air gets and a bit more colder it gets, and a cool breeze sets in. Perhaps you should have brought that extra layer. 
Your friend Jesus leads you up the way of the mountain, a really difficult climb up. But as you three near the top, he suddenly vanishes out of thin air. I mean, maybe you weren't focusing. Maybe you were busy daydreaming or talking to John or James. But wasn't he just in front of you just a moment ago? I mean, you guess, I don't know, you shrug it off. Uh, Surely he just must have run up ahead of you, and so quickly you continue to go up to the top of the mountain to meet with him, and there you are, and everything changes. To call it a mountaintop experience might be a bit of an undersell, honestly, uh, because you discover your friend, Jesus, the one who has traveled with you, the one who has laughed with you, the one who has ate and broken bread with you, the one who renamed you Peter, is conversing with two bright, shining figures. And as you approach this holy conversation, Jesus turns towards you, and his face is shining brighter than the sun, its rays nearly knocking you off your feet and blinding you. Clothes dazzling light. From his shoes to his head, everything about Jesus has changed. This is the strange and awe-striking scene that Peter, James, and John stumble upon in Matthew 17. Our passage, which is otherwise known as Transfiguration of Jesus Christ, is the climatic uh, shift towards the cross and resurrection. If we flip back even a chapter before in Matthew 16, uh, we see that Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. This Sunday, which is Transfiguration Sunday, is the pinnacle of Epiphany. This season of Epiphany, all throughout, we have been discovering who Jesus is and what he is all about. Um, Everyone in this time had different ideas of what they thought about Jesus. Um, Some were very hopeful that he would bring, you know, a political revolution, overthrow the Romans, while some were just hopeful for a religious reformation to wipe clean the old law. But uh, instead of a political leader or instead of a religious reformer just here to overthrow old things, Jesus leaves behind the courtrooms and leaves behind the temples and ventures out to a mountainside and teaches the poorest and the lowliest about the kingdom of God. This is what we've been studying over the past few weeks. It's not the kingdom of Rome nor is it the kingdom of the religious elite. It is the kingdom of God. This brings us to the transfiguration, the moment where the kingdom of God and Jesus are on full display. We discover that Christ is God. However, uh, this story is not just a mystical encounter between God and Jesus. It's also a mystical encounter between those who are all watching, Peter, James, and John. I think it's very crucial to read this passage from the perspective of the disciples. I think that's what we're supposed to do, because uh, the Gospels will go out of their way to um, describe these stories from their perspective. And so picture it. I mean, picture it for a second. You are Peter. Uh, Let's just say you're Peter. You are Peter, by far the most outspoken of all the disciples, uh, the one who blurts out whatever is on his mind. You are Peter, uh, perhaps the one who typically gets most things wrong, but at least you try, right? 
And you're, you are actually, in a lot of ways, very brilliant. You are the one who, the only one, who declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are that Peter. Or maybe you are John. I mean, everyone loves John. I love John. John, who is most likely the youngest out of all of them, perhaps 13 or 14 years old, whom Jesus calls his beloved. Or maybe you're James. Just James. Don't know much about him, but you're James. <laughs> In any case, you have been chosen by Jesus uh, to go up this mountain and to pray with him as usual. But then, like that, in an instant, everything changes. Suddenly, your friend and rabbi, Jesus, now feels very strange and very other, almost untouchable. Jesus has become far more greater than you could ever have imagined. Now, don't get me wrong. Let's be honest with ourselves. Jesus has always been a bit um, unconventional, let's say. Um, whereas being a fisherman was a pretty normal lifestyle, very predictable in a lot of ways, your life with Jesus thus far has been completely, completely unpredictable. It has been in all sorts of technicolor colors. Now, this is why this, this um, scene reminds me of a kaleidoscope. Because when you look in a kaleidoscope, um, you see, I guess, like a colorful image. You can't really tell what it is. You see a lot of colors. Um, and it's strange, but it's very beautiful. And then, with one twist of the scope, everything changes. Everything changes. A new image appears. And yet, the colors don't actually really go away. They just take a different form. But the strangeness uh, in our passage doesn't just end with them seeing Jesus in strange colors. The longer these disciples stay on the mountain, just the weirder it gets. Suddenly, they find Jesus is speaking to two figures, two figures that probably most of us know of or have heard of at least from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, maybe Moses a bit more. Now, the appearance of Moses and Elijah almost feels like a celebrity guest appearance on like some cheesy like TV sitcom, you know, like, you know, with the cue, the audience applause and like, whoa, who is that? You know, that sort of thing. That's what I figure whenever I read this. But I think that the, um, the inclusion of Moses and Elijah is very crucial. Peter, James, and John are Jewish, as well as Jesus. And they grew up with these stories about Moses and Elijah. But my biggest question, this passage is strange for many reasons, but my biggest question out of all this passage is, how did Peter know that these two figures were Moses and Elijah? You know, how did he know? Because in our passage, Jesus does not introduce Moses and Elijah. He just says, oh, I've got to make this for Moses and Elijah. So how? How does he know this? Was there something about their appearance that made them very recognizable? Was like Moses, did he look like Charleston Heston or something? You know, like, I don't know. Or maybe, um, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, or were their identities perhaps revealed to them by the Holy Spirit? You know, he just knew. Perhaps that's a bit more likely. Uh, or maybe the way that Peter knew that it was Elijah and Moses is because of where they were standing at that moment on a mountain. 
out of all the Old Testament people, the two most associated with mountains are Moses and Elijah. In a way, the transfiguration is like a holy remix of the Moses and Elijah's experiences on their own mountains. So in many ways, um, Moses and Jesus are a lot alike. Like Moses, Jesus was called out of Egypt when he was a young child um, escaping from the wrath. Um, and then they both fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in their ministries. And the most strikingly, I think, is that they both taught on mountains. It is on Mount Sinai that Moses meets God. When God appears to Moses, um, God has to veil himself in a thick cloud. I think this cloud almost acts like an envelope to God's divine presence because uh, God knows that his presence is going to be far too overwhelming for any human to see. It's just too much for us to gaze upon. And so a cloud kind of acts like a buffer uh, to protect Moses and to protect the people. So that's Moses. Then we have our other figure, Elijah. Elijah, who was a prophet um, after the time of Moses, but before the time of Jesus, so right in a middle area. Elijah encompasses everything we want from a prophet. He did it all. He is like the perfect uh, par excellence of prophets. So one day, God commands Elijah to stand on a mountain and wait for God's presence. God says, I'm going to do something big. And so Elijah obeys and goes onto the mountain. And suddenly, a gust of wind blows in fiercely, but God is not in the wind. And suddenly, the mountains tremble fiercely, but God is not in the earthquake. And then suddenly, a great fire bursts forth, but God is not in the fire. Suddenly, the world goes quiet. The world goes quiet, and God is found in a gentle whisper. In the case of Elijah and Moses, God appears in very different ways, very different in somewhat strange ways for different people and different circumstances. Yet, God still appears. And on that mountain, I think Peter is somewhat smart enough to realize something is happening. God is present. So when Peter senses this, Peter enters into the conversation, and he sees this conversation happening, and he kind of raises his hand and makes this really hilarious remark. He says, Lord, it is so good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I mean, I always get a kick out of this response because I imagine Peter is just fumbling his words at this moment, trying to come up with something to say and realizing, oh, I should probably say something in this moment. Um, as the other two disciples are just kind of like side-eyeing him, like, what are you saying? What is this? <laughs> I, think, I think in all seriousness, though, Peter's idea was not inherently a bad thing. His instincts were actually pretty good, I think. He, again, is Jewish, and he's seen in the past how it works out. Peter recognizes this moment as very sacred, albeit a bit terrifying, of course. Um, according to what Peter knew from Scripture, he knew that some of God's greatest people, the great leaders of the Old Testament, like Moses, would construct uh, tents or temples or tabernacles to meet with God. That was his mode of understanding. But 
I think Peter's eager uh, nervousness might have gotten the best of him, though. Peter was facing this temptation of technique, this, te te this problem that I think I face all the time myself. It is the idea that we must have to replicate um, something that has happened in the past, something we've heard about before from the greats like Moses in an attempt to maintain God's presence. If it worked out for them, got to do it the same, same method, same ideology. It's going to work out for us. My problem often. So although his enthusiasm is certainly there, Peter actually really fails to recognize something that is crucial for us today, that God cannot be domesticated. There is no tent out there that is strong enough to contain God's presence. Tents are designed, specifically designed, to buffer against gusting winds and uh, heavy rain. They also keep as much in as they keep out. But I think the problem with tents is that they can only withhold so much force. Um, for example, when I was about nine or 10, my parents are here so they can attest to this too. When I was nine or 10, I remember going on a camping trip with my family to Manhattan, Kansas. It's Manhattan, Kansas, not Manhattan, New York. I was not in Central Park, but Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and it was a really fun time. I remember having such a fun time there until the skies became very thick with clouds and what began as a few raindrops suddenly became a tornado warning just like that. And so we had to quickly abandon our tents and we quickly sped away to find shelter at the nearest motel and we got there as soon as we could. And so we stayed there for the night with the winds blowing and shaking and then and the next morning we uh, got back to our campsite just to see what had happened and only to find out that everything was gone. Like everything was blown away. Our little tents did not stand a chance in that tornado weather. So I think, at least this is the way I think it, at a far greater sense, the tents that we are building to like contain God stands no chance. Uh, the transfiguration today will rip our tents to shreds. The transfiguration reveals to us that God is not just kept in a tent, nor is God found in some outside-of-world country or world or planet. Rather, God is found everywhere and always. Not just in the up and out, but the down and in. God is found in the nitty-grittiness of life. As I stated earlier, this passage is like looking through a kaleidoscope. It's strange in a lot of ways. It's where we are presented with some strange colors and images that we eventually kind of get used to until everything trains, you know, turns and everything changes. But then when it's all said and done, as soon as your eyes start to adjust to this new second image, then the kaleidoscope changes again for the third time. And yet it's really impossible to go back on a kaleidoscope to the exact point that it was before. From here on out, things are always going to look a bit different. Same goes for the transfiguration. 
during the transfiguration before the disciples are able to register this weird conversation and confusion, everything goes back to the way it was before. Their friend Jesus is back to normal in his normal clothes, with his normal smile, with his normal hair and everything. And they're told to not ever mention this experience to anyone. Think mountaintop experiences are honestly not meant to last forever. If that was the case, we would be in the season of epiphany forever, just always at the mountaintop. And that would be so good, right? Instead, we um, are going to be entering very soon into the season of Lent. And we are called to follow Jesus towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and towards the resurrection. During this season of Lent, things are going to get dark if they haven't already. Mountaintop experiences like this feel like a distant memory. But the presence of God is still present. Because more often than not, God doesn't appear as this big cloud on a big mountain every single day. For Elijah, it was a still, small whisper. For the disciples, at least the rest of them, it was the face of Jesus. For us, it is the Holy Spirit who is actively present in the depths of your suffering. Now, as we stand at the edge of Lent after service, as Pastor Chris had mentioned, and before potluck, we are going to go out into the gardens and plant these seeds right here. And in hopeful expectation, we're going to scatter these in hopes that they will blossom throughout um, Easter season. Because throughout the season of Lent, these seeds are not necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily going to be in the ground being dormant. They're not just going to lay there being dry, but they're going to be transforming in beautiful and unseen ways. Same goes for us. May this story be a reminder to you that all throughout the season of Lent, God's presence is not dormant, but it's transforming us and in this neighborhood in beautiful, unseen ways.